Well, I'd invite you this morning to take your Bibles and uh, turn with me again to 2 Thessalonians in your New Testament, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Uh, we're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 as we continue uh, this study, page 959 in the Bibles here. I'd encourage you, there's a lot of detail in these 12 verses today to to make sense of it, you'll do a lot better if you can have your eyes on some copy of the text of Scripture. Believe it or not, there is something that everyone in the world agrees on. That might seem impossible, but uh, here it is. The world agrees that the world has a mess of problems. Um, we might disagree on what the problems are, uh, what caused the problems, um, how to fix the problems, but everybody knows this is a, this is a rough world and whatever it is that, that, that bothers you uh, in the news about the bigger picture is kind of your perception of the world's problems. We as uh, believers in Christ and those who believe in God's word, we do agree, I think, that the problems of the world are due to sin. So if, if we can say, okay, so we're believers in Christ, we know the Word of God, we believe the problems are because of sin, there are yet two responses, though, among Christians to the world's problems. Two tendencies, even call them temptations or ditches or extremes, because you may, you may recognize yourself here, some Christians tend to be ignorers. I made that word up, ignorers that there's a lot of problems in the world, and I'm just going to, I got enough issues of my own, my own little life, I'm going to pay attention, I'm going I'm to try to avoid thinking about the world's problems. You might see yourself kind of tending that way. There are others who are like the worriers. The, the more you see the world's problems, it's like you do deep dives on Google to, to see just how bad everything is. You can't help yourself almost sometimes. And so I don't know if you see yourself more as an ignorer or a worrier, but you do need to know there's a third option. And that's what I think the book of 2 Thessalonians is about, is that we are to have peace in spite of the problems. We don't have to ignore it, but neither is God glorified through worry, fear, and anxiety. Uh, the, uh, the believers in, in Thessalonica, I assume, in first century, were more towards the worry side, as a lot of Christians are. And you'd say, that's legit, because... They were under persecution. People were lying about them. They were, they were making riots against uh, them and so forth. We saw that in the book of Acts. But now to add to the persecution, we find out in 2 Thessalonians 2, they now had false teachers within who were confusing them just months after Paul had been there and months after Paul had written them a letter after being there. And, and now they were stirring things up with false doctrine. Let's read what the issue is in the first two verses of chapter 2. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, okay, if you, if you read 1 Thessalonians, you, oh, that's when Christ comes back and he, gath, he comes and he gathers us up to him, right? The rapture. Concerning that, we ask you, brothers, not to become unsettled easily or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. 
So there was suddenly confusion in this young church about, like, where are we in God's plan for the future, uh, what we call Bible prophecy that, that Paul had taught them? Concerning the coming of the Lord, that's really the rapture, First uh, Thessalonians 4. But so, so Paul had written them a letter. He talked about you know, faithfulness in hard times. He talked about sexual purity. He talked about caring for one another. But the last chunk of First Thessalonians is about Bible prophecy. The end of chapter 4, Christ's return in the rapture. And chapter 5, the day of the Lord. And so he had told them a lot about prophecy. Sometimes we think that new or younger Christians should not be bothered with trying to understand Bible prophecy. Like that's an upperclassman, upper-level course or something that we shouldn't bother them with. Um, and indeed, there are, there are issues that are more foundational, uh, the gospel, who Jesus is. The nature of, of God and his, his eternal, infinite uh, attributes and, and the reliability of Scripture that, that underlie everything that, that, that the whole Scripture teaches, of course, that's, that's, you could say, is most important. But anything and everything that's in the Word of God is something that any believer can be introduced to at any time. And Paul did not hesitate that these uh, believers who were probably less than six when he was there, it's like two or three months into his, their, their, their new faith, he was teaching them about the coming of Christ. And so that it's not off, off limits at all. But indeed, as you begin to think about what God has said about the future, there is a lot of questions, and it can easily be misunderstood, and, and it's an easy place for false teachers to come and give their ideas, and that evidently had happened. They were bending Paul's words and teaching what is not true, even claiming some things that Paul said that he didn't. So um, Paul proceeds to kind of give a whole in-depth, through, through, through verse 12, an in-depth description of that day of the Lord because that was the teaching that was being misunderstood. He's writing to an individual church where he had been there in person and most of the people had heard everything he said. I can't assume that we all have the same background here. So as we, as we look at this, I'd like to give us a little bit of a background of what we know from Scripture about a biblical timeline to kind of then see where does this particular issue fit in what we know more broadly from, from Scripture. So here we are uh, in the church age. So after Christ has come, died for our sins, risen again, we are in the church age somewhere. I always put it towards the end because... We're supposed to expect that Christ could come back at any time, right? What is next? Well, we've been taught in 1 Thessalonians 4 that the next thing is when Christ returns to gather us up. That's really what verse 1 of this chapter is about. The coming of our Lord Christ and our being gathered to him. Obviously, he's talking about the rapture, and, and he had talked about it in the first letter, chapter 4, so clearly it's something that has to be, that's like a reference point for him. But he says, there's more. And what we know is that there will be a seven-year time of tribulation, and there will be a, at the end of which, Christ comes back to judge, and it's a different event, as we'll see again today. It's when he comes back to judge. There, one's for Christians and one's for basically non-Christians at the end of the tribulation. Very different uh, purpose of those returns. Followed by a millennial age, Revelation chapter 20. Now, 
What he says, though, at the end of verse 2 is this. Some have been saying that the day of the Lord has already come. What is the day of the Lord? Day does not have to just mean a 24-hour day. It can be any period of time. In fact, this phrase keeps cropping up Old Testament and New Testament, and it describes a variety of events in the future. Much of them in our passage will be about the time of the tribulation, which is also the subject of most of the book of Revelation. Other times the day of the Lord clearly involves that kingdom age or the, the millennial time of blessing, judgment and blessing. And we discover that probably the word day of the Lord is almost equivalent to how we say the end times. And we don't mean just judgment or just blessing or Christ coming. It's kind of like all those things in the future, the day of the Lord. And evidently some were saying this has already happened. And so that's the key point of, of, of correction that Paul must address, that the day of the Lord do not become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, that the day of the Lord has already come. No, it hasn't. So some people were teaching, oh no, we're in this period of time, the judgment of the tribulation. Paul says, no, we're not. We're still in this time, so you can relax, okay? Yes, there's persecution. That's throughout all the ages. But we're not in the day of the Lord. We're actually in the church age. In fact, you know, they were way back there in the early portions of it. So that's essentially what this section is about. I'm going to leave the chart up there as we just kind of fill in the blanks for our background and value from 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. So go back just a few pages in whatever Bible text you have there. And we'll, we'll pick it up in the middle of some rapture te- the rapture teaching, chapter 4, verse 16. So kind of as you see the chart and look at the scripture, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven, that's the arrow sweeping down, right? With a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So that event is, first of all, a resurrection. Those who have died in this age will be raised, After that, verse 17, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up, that's the rapture word, caught up together with them, the ones being resurrected, in the clouds to meet the Lord, where? In the air. That's why it's the two arrows. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. So this is is great. This is like, yay, we're going to be raptured. And this could happen, Paul even said, we, as if it could happen in his day. This can happen at any time. Keep reading on into chapter 5. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. He evidently explained what Jesus explained, is that no one knows when that's going to be. So we aren't supposed to know that. I don't need to write about times and dates, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The thief doesn't send you an email saying, by the way, on such and such a night, I'll be there at 3 (laughs) a.m. Put your good stuff out and open the garage door. It doesn't do it that way. So, so, so it's a surprising start to this, what? The day of the Lord. See that term? The day of the Lord begins suddenly while people are saying peace and safety. And boy, don't, don't we wish there was world peace? Destruction will come upon them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So the metaphor of the thief or that suddenly labor pains begin that's, it's going to suddenly happen. So suddenly this age is going to come. 
Are we going to be a part of it? Because that's what evidently the false teachers were saying. Jump to verse 9. For God did not appoint us, believers, to suffer wrath, meaning God's wrath that will be poured out on earth during the tribulation. That's not for us. But to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to be rescued. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep when the rapture occurs, whether we've died or whether we're awake at that time, we may live together with him Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. So verse 18 of chapter 4, verse 11 says, we should be so encouraged by these truths of that, that Christ is going to rescue us. And so as you go back to chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, instead of being encouraged and at peace, what was the problem? They were easily unsettled or alarmed because there was some false teaching. He says, no, no, no. Uh, the sky is not falling. God's plan is, is clear. Everything is under control. Yes, things are hard, but that doesn't mean the day of the Lord's judgments have already come. So one issue on their mind was, after what Paul had taught, had we missed the rapture? No, you have not missed the rapture. There are, uh, sadly, among so-called Christian teachers... Some who are, are so focused on prophecy that they take some of scriptural teaching, but they begin to add all kinds of things that they think might be. Like, I think this is the Antichrist. I think Christ is going to come here or there. And so eventually you're going you're to drift into some kind of an error that contradicts. We have to keep with the scripture. And, and so some, I don't know if out of sincerity, but some have actually crossed that line of saying, Paul said this, actually. And, and Paul has to write and say, no, I didn't. And, and even if they produced a letter, then, then they've, they've really maliciously claimed that Paul said something and said, no, they, I didn't say that. Those are false reports. So they're concerned, I think, first of all, did we miss the rapture? But then secondly, are we in the day of the Lord? And, and you can understand when you're going through persecution, you might say, oh no, this must be it. And Paul says, no, it's not. In terms of his critics and those who had deceived uh, his friends in Thessalonica, Paul could have ended this passage with verse 2, basically just clearing himself and saying, no, I didn't say that. It's not true. But Paul is a patient teacher. He's a caring shepherd. And so he goes more in depth to say, I want to put down in writing what I actually said and what we actually know by revelation of the Spirit that is going to happen. So he, it seems like he's, he's just desiring in verses 3 to 12 to say, I want to put down on paper maybe things I taught, maybe things you should have known from 1 Thessalonians, but now it's going to be here for us. And of course, the Spirit wanted us here in 2024 to know it as well. And so Paul tells them, uh, first of all, two clear reasons why we, they, and really us today, are not in the day of the Lord. Because two things have not happened. Here they are. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day, the day of the Lord, will not come until the rebellion occurs. Uh, some of you have the apostasy or the word uh, falling away appears or comes first. Until the rebellion, apostasy, falling away occurs. And number two, the man of sin or the man of lawlessness 
is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. And then he describes him and what he will do, verse 4, this, we know him as the Antichrist, he will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Paul says we're not in the day of the Lord because these two things haven't happened. Whatever this apostasy is and the revealing of who the Antichrist is. Let's take them one at a time. What is this rebellion or apostasy or falling away? Uh, most people have assumed that this term apostasy uh, is a, a, some kind of a false doctrine that's going to be taking place. And indeed, that's what that word has come to mean. But uh, very simply, it could mean something other than a departure from doctrine because the Greek word is simply the word departure. Uh, in fact, in some of the first couple of centuries, that's how they, the Bible translators just put it in general terms. It means the departure, unless the departure comes first. And I really believe that this departure here is not some kind of exceptional departure from the faith, which has happened throughout this age, but rather it is the departure of Christians in the rapture. The word is just departure. Um, I very, very rarely disagree with virtually all of our English Bibles. In fact, I can't think of another time. But in this case, if they call it the falling away or imply that it is apostasy doctrinally, I would disagree, along with a good number of noted Bible scholars and teachers, including Pastor Jim, by the way. Uh, <laughs> Bible, our Bible translators of many English texts are, are sincere, godly, and, and seeking to do it correctly, but, but I think sometimes they try to interpret something instead of just leaving it at the most simple word and let us do the interpreting, right? It's just the departure. So uh, I believe this is not a doctrinal departure, but this is a reference to the rapture that we are departing this earth. I'm going to give you three key reasons for that. I think there's more. Uh, I saw somebody this week has ten reasons why he thinks this is the rapture. But three key ones, and if this gets confusing, come back after number three, okay? The first is the definition, the second is the context, and the third is a doctrinal issue. The English word apostasy has indeed come to mean a doctrinal departure. I get that. So if the word, Greek word is apostasia. So the English word does mean a doctrinal deviation, but the basic Greek word was a simple departure word. Um, the Greek noun, and this is one place, the Greek noun is only twice in the New Testament. Here, and the other one is Acts 21, 21, when it talks about who some Jews who have departed from the teaching of Moses. So that is a departure from the faith, right? There are, however, about 15 times in the New Testament where this word is not used as a noun, but as a verb, an action word. At least 10 of those times, the departure is something physical. They departed from the temple, they departed from the city, two people departed from one another, they said goodbye. So it's a physical departure. So even by definition, the word departure can easily mean the departure of Christians. And in fact, it's a perfect word for Paul to use to say, Here's the reason we're not in the day of the Lord. We're not out of here yet. <laughs> the day of the Lord can't happen here because we haven't left. I'll fly away, but we haven't yet. So the physical 
uh, or departure fits the definition quite well. The context, secondly, it makes perfect sense because already in verse 1 he said, we're going to be talking, I know one of your confusion is about the rapture. And if, in fact, the day of the Lord begins with the tribulation, then, in fact, the most simple way to say is we're not, we haven't left yet. That's the context. Definition, context, and then doctrinally, it'd be hard to explain what kind of doctrine apostasy has to take place before the rapture. And if we could identify there was a certain doctrinal, okay, now things are, there's a really bad doctrine, it's like then we would know the rapture is here, but we're not it doesn't, the rapture doesn't come with signs that tells us this is when it's going to happen. And so it just doesn't seem to fit. So if indeed apostasia, this word, does mean the rapture, it's simply a great promise of Paul to the Thessalonians. You can relax. The false teachers are wrong because the departure, the rapture, has not yet happened. Secondly, the man of sin or the man of lawlessness has not been revealed. That's the second reason why we can't be in the, the day of the Lord yet, he tells the Thessalonians. Because we don't know who the Antichrist is. But there's going to be this, he's called the man of lawlessness. You may have the word man of sin. It's somebody just evil. And it's, it, we know that this is somebody who's going to be revealed in that seven-year great tribulation. He's a, he's a human being. He's, he's a man who's going to uh, demand to be worshipped, we see in verse 4. And um, could he be alive today? There's a conjecture sometimes about that. Well, you could always say, yes, he could be. Uh, if, if in God's plan, the rapture is to be somewhere in the next couple decades, then yes, he probably would have been uh, born already. Doesn't mean we should try to identify him, but that simply, the, yeah, that could be. But we should not to expect to recognize him at this point. We know, uh, this, is a, this is the first time in the New Testament we, this has been written down about the tribulation, but uh, it's not something that's unusual to us about this Antichrist who will be revealed, who will oppose, verse 4, and call himself God. He'll oppose everything that is truly uh, about God, and he's going to set himself up in the temple to be worshipped as God? That's, that's crazy what he de- is going to demand of himself. And it's a significant marking point in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the scriptures. And so I'd like us to, to look at two passages, one in the Old Testament that is identical to this event, and one in the book of Revelation, which will come after this, was written much after Thessalonians. So here's basically our timeline uh, Seven-year tribulation, the day of the Lord, and we're going to. This event of verse four now is that the Antichrist sets himself up in the temple, and it happens halfway through. This doesn't mention the halfway through, but you'll see uh, the parallels as we go to two passages. First of all, to Daniel, the blasphemy by the Antichrist in the seven-year tribulation. Daniel nine. This is a context if you're acquainted with it of called the seventy weeks or the seventy sevens. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. Who's the he? In this context, it's the ruler who is to come. In our passage, he's called the lawless or the one or the man of sin uh, known as the Antichrist. He will make a covenant or a promise with many. Who are the many? Well, in this context, he told uh, the, Daniel is talking about your people, or they're talking to, uh, the revelation is to Daniel, your people, the Jews. 
So this guy will make a promise to the Jews. How long is this promise supposedly good for? Seven years. One seven. But in the middle of the seven, that would be halfway through, three and a half years, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. Evidently, he promised the Jews that they could make sacrifice and offering in the temple, something that Orthodox Jews have wanted to do now for two millennia, really, since they've not been able to do this in Jerusalem at the temple. But instead, at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation. What is that? It's this event of verse 4 that he is going to set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Wow. So the place where the God of the universe was meant to be worshipped, he's going to put himself there and say, no, worship me. Until the end that is decreed is poured out on him, he will be destroyed, as it says at the end of our verse 3, doomed to destruction. So that's Daniel's Old Testament, 600 B.C., reference to what now Paul by the Spirit reveals in 51 A.D., Jump now to A.D. 90, about 40 years after Thessalonians, and we come to the book of Revelation, who, where John is giving the revelation that Jesus Christ gave him personally and about the beast. Now, the beast is a reference to the Antichrist in the book of Revelation 33 times. Uh, it's, the book of Revelation is all about literal truth, but using symbolic language. Symbols don't mean it's not real. Symbols simply reference a real thing with a symbol. The Antichrist is called the beast because a beast is like an ugly, awful, evil creature, uh, whether it's in mythology or whatever. So he's called the beast in this revelation. The beast, which is this lawless ruler to come, was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies, like, I am God, exalt himself, proclaiming himself to be God, our verse, and to exercise its authority for how long? 42 months. Do the math. Three years is 36 months plus six, three and a half years. So it starts in the middle of the tribulation, and he declares himself that worst part, sometimes called the great tribulation, the last half of the tribulation time. So, so Paul is simply concurring with the Old Testament revelation by Daniel, and John's revelation would come in the future, and it would be uh, about the coming of the Antichrist to do this awful thing. Well, so Paul's point is, no, we're not in the day of the Lord, Thessalonians, or us Christians today. Why? Because the Antichrist hasn't shown up and declaring himself uh, to be worshipped. The world is in terrible shape, we agree, but we're not in the day of the Lord, uh, people have tried to identify the Antichrist in different ways throughout the, uh, the years. There's been, you know, like, it must be Hitler, it must be Stalin, it must be uh, Saddam Hussein, bad guys, and it turned out it was none of them. When I was a teenager, and uh, my, my parents were following quite a bit of Bible prophecy at the time, and I remember hearing that it was maybe Henry Kissinger, not, as a, not necessarily as a bad guy, but he was a statesman, he was Secretary of State, and, uh, but he was always trying to get peace, and so they said, oh, the Antichrist is going to get peace, let's make a correlation and say, he's trying to make peace, maybe he's, he's really this, this evil Antichrist. Well, that was 40-some years ago, and he passed away, actually, last year at 100. Some of you may have seen that in, in the news, it wasn't him. When the Antichrist comes, people will flock after him. He will be so evil, he's possessed by the devil, 
it seems to me. And uh, we aren't going to be able to pick him out now out of any bad guy lineup or good guy lineup then as now. So Paul basically says, this is, this is what you're, when you're in it, these are the things you'll see. Now Paul basically rebukes them for not having listened to him well when he was there. <laughs> kind of interesting. Verse 5, don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? This, this class, this is not new information, uh, the teacher says. I, I told you uh, these things and uh, I could refer to, first of all, mostly it's about when I was with you, but in some ways, I also wrote you a letter. So now I'm going to write down some more details of what will happen, verse 6 and 7. And now you know what is holding him back, or restraining him. Him, in the context, is the Antichrist. What's holding him back? So that he may be revealed at the proper times. time. For the secret power of lawlessness, or the mystery of lawlessness, is already at work. There is lawlessness, there is sin. But the one who holds him back, or you may have the restrainer, will continue to do so until he's taken away. And then the lawless one, Antichrist, will be revealed, whom the Lord will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. So what is going on? What is the mystery or power of lawlessness? And... What or who is the restrainer, the one holding him back, uh, the Antichrist back? Let's start with the mystery of lawlessness. Um, so when he spoke of this, of this Antichrist as the man of sin, he's basically saying, it's not like there's not awful people now. There are the Hitlers and the Husseins, okay? It's not like, it's not like this is going to be new, that suddenly there's somebody evil. There's a lot of evil people already because this spirit or this environment of, of lawlessness is there. Later on, he'll identify why it's because of Satan, right? So our, our, or as we read in First Peter earlier today, that, that, that he prowls about seeking to devour. He's, he's creating all kinds of havoc. Satan's in high gear. He's not on pause, so, secondly, who is the restrainer that's holding back this, the, 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 the emergence of an Antichrist in this awful season? Well, who could hold back someone who's empowered by Satan himself? Only God can. And for that reason, among the different suggestions there have been of who or what is the restrainer, I really believe it's the Holy Spirit, because only God, the Holy Spirit, could, could hold them back. But it says then that he will be removed until he is taken away. So the restrainer who's holding back the Antichrist is going to be taken away. How can the Holy Spirit be taken away? Where does the Holy Spirit dwell today in us, in believers? In fact, in a unique sense, throughout the church age, it's only from Acts 2 till the rapture that we have the church. All of us as believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So when the church goes up, it seems... The Holy Spirit is, in a sense, removed. Now, don't take that too far, because the Holy Spirit is always at work. The Holy Spirit is not confined to a certain location in that sense. The Holy Spirit was at work in the Old Testament believers, even though he did not indwell them. But he was at work in various ways. And really, the seven-year tribulation is like the completion, after the church age, of the Old Testament era, the 70th week of Daniel. So it, is, it, is, it makes perfect sense that the Holy Spirit is now functioning different. 
But this would also then describe that the Holy Spirit is the reason this world is as good as it is. And, and there are so many blessings, right? There are so many people like you and me, especially in America, I think, who are experiencing so much blessing because there are so many believers having so much impact. Why? Because of the Holy Spirit. Um, throughout the last couple of centuries, so many hospitals have been started by who? Believers in Christ and good uh, nonprofits, rescue missions, or, or so many organizations besides, of course, churches. The Holy Spirit is at work, and, and the Holy Spirit has, has had ripple effect in our world because of us, believers who are good neighbors, good in organizations, good in society, good in politics, good in, in schools. And so there is, this, 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 there is a real goodness, and, and the, that's going to be removed. I think especially the impact of America the last 250 years or so, uh, to, that we have a country where there is so much that there are Christian values, and, we, and, and so we, 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 you know, we, we, we fear when those values are compromised, right? But there is so much good that God is accomplishing through us, but the Holy Spirit in the church will be taken away. I was uh, thinking this week of uh, when we were in Dallas going to school and Priscilla had a, had a job at a secular company as a sales secretary. There's about a dozen salesmen that she was helping to support with secretarial work. And the, he, she said the nicest one was this atheist named Ken. Um, he clearly didn't have the Holy Spirit, didn't believe there was even a God, right? But why, why was Ken a good guy? Well, I'd say there's several reasons. Every, every human being has the image of God, and there's some, like, some residual effect of the image of God that I think glimmers through so many people. But also, just the impact of an environment where doing the right things, doing honest things, doing kind things works better. The book of Proverbs works any, any generation. And so the, the, the effect of the Spirit is, is so powerful in so many ways, and we want to continue to be that, of course, until this takes place. But there will be a time when the Holy Spirit through the church seems to be removed in that sense, and then the restraint is gone. That would characterize why Revelation chapters 4 through 19, the tribulation is so bad, so hard, and this horrible, cruel, cruel beast appears. And people follow him by, in droves. I'm so glad that from our understanding we'll be in heaven, right? The good news also is that, verse 8, he will be overthrown. And then the lawlessness, <clears throat> the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. And that's not just stated here in Thessalonians either. When we go to the book of Revelation, again, just reviewing on our on a basic timeline. So Revelation 19 is when we get to the end of that tribulation age when Jesus comes to judge, and he comes to judge unbelievers, but we're going to turn to that passage and see, or rather just to show you a few verses, at least excerpts, uh, that, that that is when he also will destroy the Antichrist, followed then by the millennium of Revelation 20. So, Revelation 19, the return of Christ to judge. 
I saw heaven standing open, and there was before me a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. He's coming to judge this time. And there's a lot of descriptions of what that involves. But verse 16, a couple of verses later, clearly identifies we know who he is. In fact, all the verses identify him. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's our Savior. The Savior is the judge. The one that we, that, we, that we worship, the one that we love, the one that knows us, the one that, that, that hears us is also the judge. We have to, we have to always balance and, and, and appreciate and worship the power of Jesus Christ who will make things right. After judging unbeliever people on the earth, believing people on the earth, it says also that the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, his sidekick, who had performed the signs on its behalf. And with these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. And the two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Praise the Lord. He is the judge of those who oppose him and Satan uh, himself. So the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write this letter letting them know, sure, first of all, they're not in the day of the Lord, but these new believers now would know some of the most important things that were ahead, that God had a plan. They can be at peace now because they know God will make it right later. It's interesting to me that um, knowing the sequence of how the New Testament was, was uh, written and distributed, this is really, these, the First and Second Thessalonians are, are the first New Testament prophetic passages. Uh, only James and Galatians were written before these two. And so this is like, they're the first to know some of these things from a New Testament perspective. It's not that it wasn't, it wasn't known before, but they, they, had, they had the book of Daniel if they were believers and uh, had access to Old Testament scrolls. So you have like Daniel and other, a lot of Isaiah, a lot of prophetic passages in the Old Testament, but now you have the New Testament just starting, and then Paul's going to say more to the Corinthians about the rapture, and, and then eventually the book of Revelation will just kind of put it all together in so many ways. That, and so we are actually the ones living at this point in the church age who have the privilege of like putting a lot of the pieces uh, together. And so we, we, we should cherish the Word of God. I hope you do, and that, that you are in the Word of God and, and know at least enough about prophecy to know that God has the plan. Because if we only read what's on our news feed, we're going to forget that. And we're going to be in the worry ditch a lot. And it's going to make us desperate. And so sometimes it just makes us respond in the flesh like, like we've got to fix, fix it as if God can't. So we, we are designed to have peace in this world. This is not the end of what the Thessalonians needed to know quite yet. So as they faced persecution and felt the heat and the hatred of unbelievers around them, as we sometimes do as well, they had to wonder, is God just? Is, uh, you know, is, why are we facing such opposition? Uh, how is God going to settle this? Why, why do we who have faith in Christ get mocked for the fact that we believe there is one way to salvation through Jesus? And, and why do our commitments to biblical morality in a world of perversion, why, why, do, why does that get like, like now, you, now, that, now that's hate speech. Why, why, does it, why do they do that? 
Things aren't feeling just. Things don't feel right. It seems like sin is winning. And so Paul in this final section explains why things are so evil, especially in the tribulation age, specifically in this passage, but it's today too. And how will God hold everyone accountable? Verse 9. The coming of the lawless one, Antichrist, will be in accord with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. So we know the source of the, of, of the Antichrist's power is Satan, and we know the source of evil today is Satan, who's continually through this world system is stirring things up. He, can't, he doesn't reside in your mind. He can't read your mind. He just knows what tempts us. That's how he's the lion that spreads all this stuff around, right? So uh, the coming of the lawless one is in accordance with the work of Satan, specifically in the tribulation. So let's just go there again and see what Revelation says about that because it describes why the Antichrist can get by, if you will, with proclaiming himself to be God. How, how can people fall for that? Chapter 13, the beast, Antichrist, I saw resembled a leopard but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast its power. And in the previous chapter, John had clearly identified that Satan is the dragon in the symbols of the book. The Satan then gave the beast its power and his throne and great authority. This is interesting. One of the heads of the beast, Antichrist, seemed to have had a fatal wound, died. But the fatal wound had been healed, resurrected. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon, Satan, because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast. Exactly verse 4. How did people end up following an antichrist? Will people follow an antichrist? He's going to do a fake resurrection. A fake death and a fake resurrection, it seems. Satan does nothing original. He tries to imitate Christ. That's why, that's, why they, that's why we follow Christ, because he really was dead. He really did arise, and, and he is our Savior because he's the God-man who died for our sins and rose again and proved he paid for our sins. So Satan says, I'll try that. And people on earth follow him because of his fake resurrection. Verse 10. That's the work of Satan. Verse 10. And in every sort of, de of evil that deceives those who are perishing. So Satan's work, every kind of evil that deceives unbelievers perishing, headed towards hell. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. There's a choice to refuse to love the truth and be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. There are some, many actually, who will be saved, it seems, in the tribulation on earth. Uh, when Revelation 4 describes the beginning of the tribulation, it says 144,000 Jewish people will be sealed. I take that to be saved. They're going to be like the witnesses to Christ during this difficult time. But the vast swaths of humanity in those seven years will not respond to judgment but will defiantly reject God's word. Why? Verse 10, they refuse to love the truth and be saved. It's a choice. 
to reject Christ. Many, many people hear the gospel of Jesus many, many times and keep rejecting it. Verse 12 says that God then sends them, or 11 rather, sends them a delusion so that they will uh, believe a lie. At some point, God gives them up, if you will. Uh, If someone has a hardened heart, God doesn't change their will. Reminds us actually of Pharaoh who had a hardened heart, and eventually it says God hardened his heart. Uh, he, he chose to have a hardened heart, and so it was a hard one. And all will be convinced. Here's the basis of, of salvation in all ages. All will be condemned who have not believed the truth. That's it. It's, it's do you believe the truth of the gospel? Jesus is the Son of God, eternal Son of God, come to earth, bore our sins, paid for them all, offers us salvation. We can believe it, put our faith in it, or not. Instead, they choose to delight in wickedness. One of the main reasons people reject Christ today is because they they don't want to stop their sin. Uh, They they, they delight in wickedness, and so they, they just reject anything about accountability to God. I don't want to admit that I'm a sinner, and so it's like they, they, they defy and reject and deny anything that is true because they are making an awful eternal trade to have pleasure for a few years when in fact by humbly acknowledging their sin and putting their faith in Christ they would have joy for eternity. Paul wrote this to friends in what? Emotional state, verse 2. Unsettled, alarmed, Shaken, disturbed, troubled. If that's you, that the world's problems cause you to slide towards that worry and fear and anxiety ditch, what do you do? Well, we have the resources of prayer and the Word of God. Where will you invest your time? Let me suggest three ways we can find peace uh, in a troubled world. One is one that maybe you've gone to many times, pray about everything. Do not be anxious about anything. That means if the Bible tells you don't do it, is that sin? Let's just recognize we're, we're just naturally anxious. That's not God's will. And we have an out. Pray. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, It's like, God, I know you have this in control. Present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind. The the places where we churn and wonder, oh, dear, my kids, my grandkids, this world. And God, that is not God's will, but rather that there would be a peace because we know him. And so we we cast, you know, like we read it, 1 Peter 5, 7, cast every care. You know, what's going on this afternoon? Cast that care. What's going on in the whole wide world? Cast that care too. Because we can talk to him about everything. Many times we only talk to each other. That's, that's often not the most encouraging thing. If you have two warriors together, oh boy. Focus on Christ's presence, not the world's problems. Aware of the world's problems, absolutely. I read news quite widely. Aware. But Jesus said this, where's your focus? I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So yeah, 
the world is full of trouble. We all agree. When we focus, in me, you'll have peace. So are you focused on your relationship with Christ? That's where you're going to find peace. And number three, focus on gospel opportunities if, when, you feel persecution. Peter said, even if you should suffer for what is right, you are actually blessed. So if it happens, you should be, in one sense, celebrating that you're suffering for the right thing. Do not fear. That's a command. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Instead, here's what you should do. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. God, you're in charge. You're the master. And then what? Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have because you see the whole world agrees the world's in a mess and they have fear too. They just don't know the source of it. And so here you and I are and we can give them the answer. We have an opportunity when the world is a mess to tell them why we aren't a mess. Why we aren't living in fear about the things that, you know, we could be talking to someone who's an unbeliever that actually agrees with us about a lot of the world's problems, but they don't have Christ. And so they're living in fear. We shouldn't be. So instead we say, I'll tell you about the reason I have hope. And then how are you going to talk to them? No. With gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect, the same way we should treat everybody all the time, right? So we have every reason to have peace because we can go to God with everything. We can focus on the presence of Christ. And then it's actually an opportunity for us to share our faith in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is a troubled world. You know it. You know your plan. You know how many days we have left on earth, whether it's the day of our death or the day of Christ's return. Thank you for telling us so much about the, the long-term plan on earth that as we live our tiny little piece of it here on earth, we would have peace knowing that we can trust you with the big picture. Lord, help us to be faithful to you, leaning on you, taking our anxieties to you. You know how we're, how we're made of flesh and, and struggle. And may we have a, a confident life going into whether it's this month, this year, the next decade, or thinking to the far future. Lord, you're the one that called us into eternal glory after we've suffered just a little while. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.